everyone. My name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Scott Young. Scott is one of the most intellectually adventurous people I've ever come across. I'm a longtime reader of his blog and work, so I was stoked when he agreed to come on the podcast and talk. We start off our conversation talking about a few of Scott's first few ultra-learning projects, like the MIT Challenge and the Year Without English. Then we dive into what ultra-learning itself really is, how it's distinct from learning as we typically think about it, and the many psychological benefits of ultra-learning, from increased self-confidence and curiosity to the fascinating notion of an expansion of personal possibility. Enjoy. Scott Young, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Now, you're the only person I've ever heard of to acquire an MIT education in computer science without actually ever attending MIT. (laughs) Can you tell us briefly about what's become known as your MIT challenge and how it got you on the road to ultra learning? Yeah, so this was a project I took on uh, almost a decade ago. I just graduated from university. I studied business, and at the time, I was thinking that I wish I had studied something else. I don't know if whether anyone listening here has had that experience before where you've gone to school, you did some degree and you're like, mm, I should have done something else instead. And I was thinking that I wanted to learn computer science because I was really interested in technology, the internet, and it really seemed like that's where everything was happening. You know, like I went into business school because I thought that's, that's what you want to do if you become an entrepreneur. And it's only sort of like after that, that you're realizing, oh, actually all the people I really admire are more, <laughs> uh, more programmers and technical than, than just people who studied accounting and finance and stuff. And so I was thinking at the time, well, maybe I'll go back to school. Uh, Like I'll go back as a mature student, you know, spend another 40 years, uh, take out some student loans, this kind of thing. And that didn't seem super appealing. And around this time, I found that MIT actually posts a lot of their actual classroom materials just online. They've been doing this for, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years now. And it's called MIT Open Courseware. And unlike uh, MOOCs, like Coursera and stuff, these are not classes that are made for some sort of online audience. They're just, you know, someone set up a camera in the classroom and recorded it. And they uh, take, you know, scans of the actual exams that people do or assignments and they upload it. Now, it is, you know, kind of sketchy. There's some material in some places, some and not. So it's, it's not the kind of thing I think that was ever intended as well, this is a super user-friendly way for someone to get an MIT education without going to MIT, but more often even for educators just to be like, well, this is how we teach it at MIT if you are you know, interested. And, uh, and I remember taking like one of the classes at the time and I thought, well, this is amazing. Like, this is such a good class and all the materials there and you could even test yourself. You could do a test and then check it against the solutions and get a pretty good sense of how well you did. And so I, I got this idea of, has anyone ever tried to like try to emulate a degree before? Like not, not, you know, not obviously do it exactly how an MIT student would do, but, you know, basically figure out what are all the classes that you'd have to take and, you know, watch the lectures or read the textbooks and and do the final exams. And so this, uh, this was sort of my first kind of project of this type, this, this kind of ultra learning thing, which I, I talk about in the book of not only myself, but people who have taken on some really interesting projects 
And uh, the thing was really life-changing for me because it really showed me, oh, actually, if you want to learn anything, you don't have to go to school. You could totally teach yourself. You could totally do this. And this doesn't just apply for computer science, but, you know, as, as we'll talk about later with, with language learning, with art, with business skills, with public speaking, with all sorts of things. And so it really was a game changer for me because I think a lot of us often feel kind of restricted, like, Maybe we want to be in a different kind of profession or we want to move up in our career or we want to learn a new hobby, but we have all this resistance and going back to school is really hard. And sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, if, if I had just picked something different when I was 18, my life would be different right now. And so I really think this approach to learning things is just, it has so much potential that uh, that, that was one of the main reasons that I ended up writing a book about it, admittedly about 10 years sure. after I, I did that project. but. Um, but that that's amazing. So, so you spent like a, a year, right? About a year. Um, yeah. And you just literally. Well, that worked. was me being uh, also also being uh, probably a little bit cocky. Just <laughs> I was also thinking, well, you know, what what could I do? Like, or maybe I could really push this. And and I had been a good student in school, and I had been interested in like studying technique and advice and stuff. And so this just felt also like this perfect kind of challenge because. When you're in school, you're very constrained by the schedule they give you. And even if you try to take like more than the recommended number of classes, the registrar won't let you. And they really discourage like doing things in any kind of innovative way. Right. And so this to me just felt like, oh, well, if you could just watch the lectures at like one and a half or two times speed and, you know, or if you just did the assignments and immediately got question per question feedback, like it just seemed like there was all these opportunities to maybe do things um a little bit more efficiently if you had total control over it. And so that was another thing driving me to try this kind of ambitious uh, one-year time frame. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, and I assume you uh, you passed all the classes, right? You got you got a good enough uh, marks on the... Yeah, on the I did. I mean, my goal was to pass the classes. So that that is something to point out that I think if I had been taking over four years, I would have been wanting to get good grades and not merely pass it. But part of that was also just the fact that the materials themselves were somewhat a little bit more limited. And so the passing criteria, while it maybe not is, is not the goal every student would have it was the most feasible one to work with. Like, you know, there were some classes where, you know, there's a section that there's just, oh, they didn't include the lectures for that section. So you kind of have to work around it and stuff right, like this. Right. So um, this was sort of, I think, a pretty fair benchmark. And, and I did upload all the exams and people can check them over and stuff. And so I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I, I got 100% on every single exam. But I do think that if you look back, uh, I did learn the material that they were trying to teach. And I think that, um, it definitely accomplished what I'd set out for, which was to get this sort of grounding in, in computer science, which I think informs a lot of my thinking about other subjects. And, you know, I've written computer programs and stuff since. So it's, it's, it's definitely been helpful for me. Yeah, now you also managed to avoid the sophomore slump when it comes to ultra learning because your, <laughs> your second major project was the year without English. Can you just real quickly, can you run us through what that was exactly? Oh, that was a fun project. That was a fun project. So um, I was, so after I finished this MIT challenge and this had brought me a little bit of fame or, or if you like notoriety um, and I... I was really excited about this idea of just doing these sort of ambitious sort of projects. I was still at a space in my career where I had a lot of flexibility. I was doing online writing, but, you know, uh, single, no kids. I was like pretty, pretty much full control over my time. I have a, I have a new baby right now. So I, I somewhat, uh, somewhat <laughs> missed some of those days of having complete flexibility over my hours. But I was, uh, 
I was thinking about this sort of idea and a friend of mine who was my roommate at the time was planning on quitting his job and doing um, a big trip. He wanted to do like a gap year before going off to do his master's. And we were thinking, well, maybe we could travel together. I'm working online. I could work while we're on the road and, and it would be good. And I was telling him a little bit about I had done an exchange when I was doing my, my actual undergrad in business school. I did an exchange in France for a year. And I had had kind of two feelings. One, that I really liked the kind of language learning part. Um, I really liked, you know, learning French and trying to speak it. But also that I felt very suboptimal in how I did it. Because I went there and I enrolled in English classes because I didn't speak any French. And most of my friends spoke to me in English. And so I just felt like this thing like, ah, I kind of didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. Um, that if I had gone in for immersion, I would have had much better French and I would have felt better about it. And so I was telling him this and we kind of combined these two ideas of doing a world trip plus language learning. And the kind of gimmick, I guess, for the trip was that when we landed in each country, the goal was to not speak any English to each other or to anyone we would meet when we were there. And I don't want to give the impression I was 100% perfect for the entire year. There were some there were some uh, some exceptions. But for the most part, we did succeed in that goal, like especially in Spain, where we were nearly perfect. Um, we did succeed in that goal of not speaking in English. And the result was really incredible for both of us, because from a strictly functional ability to like live in another language to make friends and go to restaurants and do all this kind of stuff, we were able to do that in um, not just one country, but in four countries. So we learned Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese and Korean. And so this was just like just I don't know, it was not only a fun trip, we got to see the world, but we got to have all these really unique experiences because um, we were talking to people who, you know, didn't speak English and, and we got to see their perspective on things and become friends with them and stuff. That's amazing. I mean, to think that you basically got um, functionally fluent uh, in Mandarin in what, three months? Um, well, Mandarin, Mandarin, I will give this, Mandarin and Korean are much harder than Spanish yeah, and Portuguese. <laughs> so uh, like the Spain part of the trip was a lot of like partying and going to the beach and like just hanging <laughs> out with people. And the Chinese part of the trip was a lot more like me going to the little bookstore there and like, you know, grinding flashcards for a couple hours a day every day. So I, I do, I don't want to give the impression that like, you know, anyone could, you know, learn. Certainly I wasn't fluent in uh, Mandarin. I, I kind of have higher expectations for that word now maybe than I did then. But sure. um, but I was certainly at a point where I would emphasize the functional rather than the fluent part. Because sometimes fluency, I think, gives people this impression that like I'm perfect at it. And then someone who's spent 10 years intensively studying it is like, oh, what are they doing that's so slow? But really they're doing a different thing. They're like much, much better than I am. But I think you know, at the point where, oh, well, you could have friends and you could speak only this language for a month or two and it wouldn't be bad. You know, those are the kinds of experiences I'm talking about. And I think for a lot of people, especially if you're, you know, the kind of person who wanted to learn Spanish so that if they went to Mexico, they could just speak in Spanish to people that they meet on their trip and get everything done. I mean, like that is a level of linguistic ability that you can definitely accomplish um, in a couple months, if you're serious about it, even if the, you know, giving university lectures level is, is a ways off. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. Okay. Now both of those are pretty intense, uh, projects. <laughs> they're both year long. Yeah, and a little bit, yeah. They're just like, wow. You know, I think I imagine your average person listening to this and going, holy cow, like there's no way I could do that. But you, one of my other favorite projects that you've talked a lot about, um, is what you call your portrait drawing challenge, uh, your 30 day portrait drawing challenge. 
could you just real quick, what, what did you do yeah. with that one? Well, this one is harder to talk about in an audio only format because the way I usually present it is like, well, the portrait drawing is such a visual thing. So whether or not you think what I did was impressive really depends on you looking at it and being like, was that impressive or not? So I, I won't try to talk about how well I did the, the challenge because I think that's really something you have to see for yourself and, and make your own decision. But um, the way that worked is, so a lot of these challenges start with me feeling like kind of two things. One, that I'm not good at something that I'd like to be better at. Like I'd like to learn computer science or I, I didn't feel like I learned French the right way. Um, and so in this case, I was trying to draw portraits. I was doing some kind of like, I think it was the drawing on the right side of the brain book. Yes. <laughs> um, really good book, actually. And I got to the portrait drawing section. And I like, I mean, my self-portrait before and after did get a little better, but it still wasn't like good. Like I didn't want to show it off. And I felt kind of like, hmm, you know, drawing faces is really hard because we have such evolved and sophisticated pattern recognition for faces that we don't have for like leaves or you know a tree or something like a tree you can draw kind of a little bit wrong and it still looks like a tree where you draw someone's face a little bit wrong and it looks atrocious and so to me this was just this kind of pinnacle of draftsmanship and i thought you know it'd be so cool if you could just draw like really lifelike and realistic um portraits and and at the same time i was sort of compelled with like well maybe the way to do it is to just get a lot of feedback. Like you draw it and then if you could somehow tell what mistakes you made. So normally you draw it and it just looks bad, you know, but if you could sort of be like, oh, well the problem was that I made the face too wide or I made the eyes too high or, or the nose a little bit off or something like this. If you could do that, then with this sort of feedback, eventually you would sort of hone in on the right way of drawing the faces. So this was sort of my kind of gimmick, I guess, for this project was, oh, what if I just got a ton and ton of feedback and maybe I'd improve? And uh, the funny thing is, is that the project, I think, was fairly successful at the end of it. Uh, again, uh, up to your viewer discretion. Totally successful. But, you guys should just but, really um, this right now. Google <laughs> Scott Young portrait challenge and you'll see well, the before and after. It's awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank right, you. you. I appreciate that testimonial. <laughs> um, but the, the, the funny thing was, is that I think that my thesis of doing the feedback, I don't want to say that it was bad, but it wasn't really what got me to the end of that. And that was, um, it was a much more conceptual idea of, I actually took this course from a place called Vitruvian Studio. So anyone can take this course. So if you want to take it, if you want to learn to draw faces, it's probably the best course out there by Vitruvian Studio. And this guy, if you look at his portraits, I mean, they're, they're like better than photographs. It seems weird to say that their drawings are better than photographs, but they actually are. Like they look better than photographs. And, um, and so I took his course and he had a whole method for how to get like, extremely high accuracy when you're doing drafting and this method is a little bit tedious if you're just like it doesn't work for a quick sketch but the thing that's sort of incredible about it is that um if you and I, again if you got better you would be able to just sort of do a little bit more just sort of by guessing so it, i think it does help with your kind of sight drawing without having to be tedious about it but um it's sort of an elaboration on the way that uh, you often learn to start drawing is maybe you do a grid. So, you know, a very simple thing is like, you you know, divide into 10 by 10 squares and then you just figure, okay, in cell A3, there's a little bit of the forehead. So I'll draw that little line there. And that's how you can keep sizing and relationships. But the problem with that is that um, 
aside from the fact that the more grid squares you have, the more tedious it becomes. So if you want something that's more accurate, it's harder. But also you don't really have accuracy within the grid, right? Like you you still, every little grid is like a little picture that you're trying to copy now. And not to mention that it's, it's kind of artificial and this kind of thing. Whereas this approach was much more building out the shape by kind of comparing sort of some reference angles. And um, the nice thing about it is that it scales so that you could get like, you could get levels of accuracy where you know, like within the width of a pencil, where like the corner of the eye is supposed to be. And I thought that was really incredible because that that's how you could get not just, uh, oh, that looks pretty good, but this looks exactly like that person. And so, mm. um, so that ended up being, I think, what took me from being okay at some of the pictures to getting it to a point where I felt pretty happy at the end of that project and so that is kind of funny that i go into some of these projects with one idea about oh this is how it's going to work and then i then i do it and then i'm like oh actually it was something else that um that turned out to make the difference so that project um was a fun project to do too yeah so you okay so you spent 30 days on this how much time would you say on average you dedicated each day to um, this? that one i that one i was very rigorous with the time investment that one was uh five hours a day so uh, I think it was 25 hours, no, none on the weekend, five, 25 hours per, uh, per week. Um, and so I think the end project was maybe like a little under 100, like 120 hours. So 120 hours is a lot. I, I, I'm not saying that like doing 120 hours in a month is like something most people can do. But I mean, you could do it over a year. Yeah, I could do it over months, two years. Right? I, like there's like nothing really like if you did it over a year, that's less than an hour a day. You know, it's not something that would be a huge time commitment if you want to do it over a longer time frame, And so that's part of the, also the message I want to give is like, I, I spent a lot of time doing these projects in part also because, you know, I want to do something that's interesting for the, for the reader. Um, but if you're trying to emulate them, like you can totally stretch and scale them. It's not, not, it's not the case that you have to do the MIT challenge in a year. You could do four of the classes and do it over one year if you wanted to, like you don't have to right. do the whole thing. And so, um, I'm, I'm more, they're just sort of thought experiments or, or more and more like concrete experiments rather than, um, you know, this is exactly how everyone should do things. Right. Yeah. So th these have been great to kind of illustrate, um, ultra learning and in particular kind of the breadth of it. Like you can do these big kind of year long intensive things, um, but you can also do these relatively modest things um, mm -hmm. in a fairly structured intense way. Now, but let me ask you before we kind of move on to, to some other questions sure. um, about ultra learning. I have a, a five-year-old daughter, my, my oldest uh, child is she's five and she's been uh, starting to ask a lot of big questions lately. So daddy, what's a black hole? What's a psychologist? How do spaceships work? You know, the, the usual. <laughs> and oh, wow, I, yeah. I, I always bumble my way through them. Um, but I think it's uh, after the fact, it always strikes me that it's a really interesting uh, sort of question to ask. Like, I'm a psychologist. I, I do psychology stuff all day long. But to have to explain what a psychologist is to a five-year-old is a really interesting thought experiment. Um, so I'm wondering... Mm -hmm. On the off chance that my five-year-old is listening to this, how would you describe <laughs> very briefly what is ultra learning? How would you describe it to a five-year-old? No, okay. So the way that I describe it in the book is that it's aggressive self-directed learning, which is a little bit of a finesse definition. Uh, but the idea basically is that it is picking something that you want to be good at, that you want to learn. And being really enthusiastic and uh, obsessive about doing it right. So the the kind of two contrasting strategies for learning is one I will say is a kind of formal education approach, um, which is where 
you are just following along what someone else is telling you to do. And so you're not making a lot of decisions. You're not thinking about, is this the best way to do this? You are just following someone else's um, instructions. So enrolling in like college is very much like this. But uh, it's also the case that you can think about it like this if you were... Uh, you know, you just bought a, a course that you're going to study at home course and you're just doing exactly what it says and you're not really thinking that much about the learning process. So that would be sort of one way that it differs. And then the other way it differs is what I would say from kind of like dabbling, which is the just, well, I'm just having fun. I'm just playing around. I'm not really trying to, you know, what is the best way to learn this? And this doesn't mean that, you know, ultra learning doesn't have to be fun. I, I, you know, I certainly had a lot of fun doing the projects I did, but the kind of, they have a certain, the aggressiveness portion of them is based on this idea of that, well, the goal isn't just to have fun. The goal is to figure out how to get good at this and what's the best way to get good at this. And so, you know, I'm sure as a psychologist, you're also aware of all of the, you know, there's all sorts of research showing how, you know, students don't always study in the most effective way. So they'll often reread notes when what they should be doing is some kind of retrieval practice or, you know, they highlight their textbook instead of actually really, you know, thinking about what's in the material. And so there's lots of ways, I mean, these are small examples, but there's lots of ways that if you were just doing something for fun, you might not take the approach that works best. You might for some subjects and, and often what that's what people who I mentioned this ultra learning talk to me is they're like, oh, when I learned X in the past that I did really well, this is what I was doing. I was doing this. And so it's more just sort of recognizing what is it that you've been doing when you've taught yourself something well in the past and how do you extrapolate that to things that maybe you didn't teach yourself well in the past or you were kind of uh, afraid to try. Gotcha. Love it. So let's, we're going to transition to sort of a uh, second half, so to speak of our sure. conversation. And I really want to, I want to talk about, I guess in broad strokes, you, you could call it sort of ultra learning and psychology or, or even ultra learning and mental mm -hmm. health. Um, and as I was reading your book, there, there's sort of a subtle but strong thread woven throughout it, which it, to me suggests that more than just skill acquisition, the benefits of ultra learning kind of extend to a more psychological or even existential level. Um, at, for instance, at, at one point in the book, you say, I'm going to quote you here, your deepest moments of happiness don't come from doing easy things. They come from realizing your potential and overcoming your own limiting beliefs about yourself. Ultra learning offers a path to master those things that will bring deep satisfaction and self-confidence. Now, okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot in there in, the, in those couple sentences. Um, maybe another book, if I can persuade you of it by the end of this. <laughs> but I want to start with the idea of deep satisfaction that comes from ultra learning. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, in terms of your experiences with well, deep learning? I mean, and I, I, I think it's funny. I was just having a conversation with someone about, uh, something related to this. My, my whole idea when I write books like this is, uh, very much if it speaks to you, then it speaks to you. I'm not really trying to make some kind of universalist claim that this is how everyone should be. But if you read those words and they sounded true to you, then maybe listen further. And my, my feeling about it is that we often, we often engage in the world from a very kind of passive point of view that, you know, we watch television shows, we watch the news, we kind of, there's stuff kind of impinging on us. And I think that there is a case to be made that where we find our satisfaction and happiness comes from sort of more the opposite direction, where it's more creative, where we're learning something, where we're mastering something. And this involves a certain amount of difficulty. You know, it, it doesn't involve that much difficulty to sit down and watch a show on Netflix. It does involve some difficulty 
to learn French <laughs> or learn painting or, you know, build a table or something like that. And so I think the kind of philosophy that, that guides my life is that the, the kinds of experiences that I want to cultivate are ones of, I don't know whether I can do this and then going out and doing it. And then that becomes something that you can do now. So this sort of expanding competency and the feeling, all I can say is that the feeling I had after doing this MIT challenge or even during it, um, it was a huge defining moment in my life because it wasn't just learning something, especially even just going to school, learning something I've, you know, I've done that before, but it was also this feeling of what else is out there that I could get good at if I just sort of took it seriously and, and, and took the right approach. And so that led to the language learning project, portrait drawing and other things. But I think that's something that a lot of people don't even realize that they've kind of created this little box for themselves of these are the things I'm good at. Uh, these are the things that I can do. And that's the box they live in. And they just live in there their whole lives. And, you know, I don't want to make you feel guilty if, if that's this. But if you want to get outside the box, if you want to see what other things you might be capable of, I think that can be a very um, life-affirming thing. Yeah, it's interesting, this, this kind of tension between um, passive and active sort of modes of being in the world and, and the kind of different kind of satisfactions they lead to. Because on the one, you know, like I like watching Netflix as much as the next person. It's, it's enjoyable. Yeah. It's satisfying on some level. But it, it's a very different thing than, um, you know, in some ways, like starting this podcast was something I thought a lot about doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was kind of intimidating and daunting. And um, But the satisfaction that comes from producing a podcast with someone like yourself, someone who I've admired for a long time, it's, it's such a different, qualitatively, it's so different than even just listening to the best podcast you've listened to in a long time. It's, it's very hard to describe that. How do, you, how do you think about that? Like literally the feeling that comes from the satisfaction, this kind of deep satisfaction that comes from more uh, active, like kind of proactive creative pursuits. Like how do you think about, like how, do you how would you describe that and differentiate that for you, just for you? Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, we have this um, background kind of philosophy about our own happiness that I think is, it does feel kind of consumption driven that, you know, utilitarianism or, or these sorts of ideas that, you know, or just even like, you know, the basis of economics that, you know, that's what we're trying to do is sort of increase the things that we have as kind of consumers almost and getting pleasure from things or, you know, getting joy and happiness. And I think um, that's certainly a true, that's certainly a component of things. Again, like this is not a slight on Netflix or a slight <laughs> on, you know, other kind of leisure activities that you might have. But I think there is something kind of fundamentally different about self-selecting some kind of challenge or self-selecting some kind of thing and and opening yourself up to it because it's often not the most pleasurable experience, at least in the moment, you know? Uh, it is often the case that it's frustrating or difficult or hard and there might be something negative about it, but there's something very meaningful about it when you're able to push past those things, like when you back finally figure it out. And I don't think that that, uh, that meaningfulness of it um, necessarily compresses down to just, well, it was, you were feeling bad when you were doing it and now you feel bad that you're good at it. Cause I don't think it fits that model either. So I think for me there, it's just a basic kind of human experience to 
you know, to have something that you were struggling with or, or that you were kind of admiring from afar, perhaps, and then realizing it is just, um, is really satisfying. And I think sometimes we can get that in our work or in our personal lives or in our hobbies. But I think for a lot of us, we maybe get in positions where we don't even realize that we've kind of boxed ourselves out from that experience because we don't have time and our job doesn't provide it. And, you know, we have, you know, one or two little hobbies that we do, but we don't have time for that. And so we kind of miss this sort of experience. And then we wonder why we feel this kind of general malaise about, about our life. And I think that that, you know, that might be part of the reason. Yeah, I want to get to that that idea of kind of malaise um, a little further on, but but while we're while we're talking about this, you, you know, one of the books I thought a lot about as I was reading your book is one of Tyler Cowen's books called The Complacent Class. Are you familiar with it? Have you have you read it? I actually I I I'm followed Tyler Cowen on his uh, blog, and so I have read many of his books. I don't know whether I read The Complacent Class, so yeah, so it, I, but I heard it, him blogging about it, so I feel like I know a lot of the sound bites. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the the basic the, the gist of it, the main kind of argument is that um, he, Americans, but I think in particular, kind of West, a lot of Western societies, or or even just developed um, kind of first world um, countries, have lost their what he calls their pioneer spirit. And that they kind of increasingly are playing it safe, both sort of economically and psychologically, and that this actually has pretty significant kind of long-term risks. Um, and it's it's interesting because I, it, that sort of mirrors something I see in my work as a, as a therapist and a psychologist a lot, which is that a lot of my clients' um, struggles with, with things like depression or anxiety, at least in part, seem to stem from as you were mentioning, this kind of malaise or kind of an emptiness or like a lack of purpose or genuine excitement in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I, I gravitated a lot to these passages in your, in your book, like this one, you sort of alluded to it a a minute ago, but you say, when you're describing the MIT challenge, you, you say, my feeling after the MIT challenge wasn't just a deepened interest in math and computer science, but an expansion of possibility. If I could do this, what else could I do that I was hesitant to try before? Learning at its core is a broadening of horizons, of seeing things that were previously invisible and recognizing capabilities within yourself that you didn't know existed. Like, man, I get excited just reading that. <laughs> I've probably read it like 12 times in the last few days <laughs> prepping for this. But can you talk a little bit more about th- this idea of like the expansion of possibility and like broadening of horizons that comes from, I, I think this is so important um, when it comes yeah. to this concept. I don't know. You know, some of it's also my hardwiring. So I, I don't want to say that everyone necessarily is going to feel the same way because I just feel for me that the the world is so inherently interesting um, that it kind of surprises me that people are regularly bored. <laughs> like, <laughs> not just bored in one moment because you don't have anything to do right now, but just bored with life, with existence. Or or it kind of switches to a negative polarity where it's just kind of a like a, like a low-level anxiety that you have about everything. And to me, I just feel like... Um, the world is just so interesting. You know, uh, I, I, I think I wrote an essay about this where I was saying that, you know, for me, it's the opposite perspective that people just generally find most topics and subjects and skills boring that I don't understand. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand people who don't find, uh, you know, astronomy and physics fascinating. I don't understand people who don't think languages are cool and that, you know, the idea that there's people who are using totally different words and grammar than we're using right now to communicate their own version of the ideas that there's entire like 
subsections of the world that are like invisible to you because you don't speak the language that those people are speaking. Um, that, you know, to think that that's just boring. I just don't understand people who, who think like that. But I think part of it might be this kind of learned response that when you engage in those areas, if you're unsuccessful with it, so you go to try to learn some physics because, you know, your daughter's five and she likes black holes and she's heard it somewhere and it sounds cool. And then, you know, someone presents you tensor field equations and you're, this just looks like gibberish and you've tried and you failed, that it's maybe a learned response to be like, okay, go back to my cave, you know, go back to my little hole that makes sense to me in the world. And yeah, it's not great here, but everything else is, is too hard and too bewildering. So I think there's maybe also something about that, that just being able to learn something effectively, um, I think also changes how you think about it. I'll give a concrete example because I think some of this just maybe sounds like me, you know, I don't know, boasting about like, oh, I'm clever or something like this. And that's why I love learning. But I remember when I, before I went to France, so before I tried to learn any languages and I'm Canadian, so we did do a little bit of French instruction in school, but like, you know, it was nothing that stuck. And I remember thinking it was like incredible that someone could speak like another language as an adult. <laughs> and maybe like if they spoke like two, that was like, you know, Jason Bourne level incredible. I thought, <laughs> oh, that is just so cool. And then I went to France and I worked really, really, really hard for a year. And I got to like a mediocre level of French at the end of it. And I was very proud at the end of that year. I was like, oh, okay, I learned some French. But as I mentioned, like, also kind of aware of my own deficiencies and um having done this last project uh well now now it's like seven years ago the thing that i that i left with it was not okay well i'm fluent in seven languages now or whatever but rather the feeling i had was oh well if you wanted to go to any country and just like learn enough to like you know have interactions with people and talk with people and have conversations like you could just do this. Like you, I, I could, I didn't have to stop traveling after a year. I could just keep going every three months. And indeed I met people and I've met people who have done this. Like I've met people who speak 30 plus languages. They just really like language learning and they just kept doing it <laughs> and they kept learning languages and they kept, um, uh, being able to, you know, meet new people and have new experiences and stuff like this. And so for me, I think it was the figuring out how language learning worked, or at least to that level of language learning that, unlocked this door that it was like oh if i wanted to i could do it with these other countries so even um a couple months ago my wife is uh, was originally born in um uh well uh, yugoslavia then but now called north macedonia and she speaks uh, macedonian which is a slavic language and uh we recently had a baby and so uh, i was thinking you know it, it would be good especially for my son's long-term ability to learn macedonian if i also learned some so we did kind of the same thing that I did on the trip. We did a sort of no English for one month um, here at home where we just spoke in Macedonian. And while my Macedonian isn't fluent, it's certainly enough to have conversations. And so now I'm having some chats with some of her relatives um, over over the sort of Skype phone where before when we went to visit them, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. And so <laughs> th these are just little things that, I mean, for me now, it's so normal to to do that. Like that's just, well, obviously just the same way that, you know, if, if you were, you know, the way that you, you know how to drive a car and you know how to do these things, you just, you just know how to do it. It's, it's something that you've learned from practice. And so I think there is a certain sense that learning how to learn is itself a skill. And so you could become artistic and learn how to teach yourself other forms of art. So if you wanted to learn drawing, then you could go on to learn painting and you could go on and learn sculpting. And if you learn dance, you could go learn other dances or you could learn other sports. And so I think it makes sense to maybe invest in this ability to 
know how to learn. Uh, and that not only comes from knowing the theory from like reading a, a book like mine or, or reading other books in psychology, but also from hands-on practice. That's a big part of it. You can't just read theory. But when you have that experience, it just, it makes the world just a little bit bigger. There's just a few more places you can go. There's a few more things you could do. It's, you're living in a, in a slightly bigger box. There's a slightly more space for you to kind of roam and pick things in. And, and I think that it makes life more exciting too, because again, this sort of black hole discussion, if you felt you could really learn physics, if you felt that if you put your mind to it, you could understand what they're talking about when they're doing the math, it wouldn't be boring. You know, it's boring because you feel like, oh, I'm going to put in all this effort and it's going to go nowhere and I'm going to get a bad result on the test and, and, you know, I'm going to feel bad. And so I think, um, that's what I'm trying to encourage. I want to encourage people to get on that sort of positive feedback cycle where they can find the world kind of a full and interesting place. Yeah. So this, okay, this is a topic I really wanted to, this was the thing that was probably most bugging me while I was reading the book in a good way, kind of that itch you couldn't scratch, um, is that, first of all, you do a really good job in the book of kind of showing how a lot of the people, including yourself, who do these ultra learning projects, like it's, it's probably not the case that you guys aren't just all like super geniuses, um, with IQs of, you know, 150 plus (laughs) it's, it's really, there is like a very strong kind of skill component to this. So you can't just attribute all of this to intelligence necessarily. But one of the things that I was thinking of is yourself and a lot of the people you describe, there seems to be this like innate kind of curiosity um, that this really, it's almost like a compulsion. Like once you kind of got that itch to like, you know, I really want to learn French the right way. It, it sort of like drove you on. So I think one of the most fascinating implications of this is not just that ultra learning can kind of help you acquire skills, valuable skills, which is certainly can. Um, and not even that it can kind of teach you this really valuable lesson of learning how to learn. But what do you think of the idea that ultra learning, maybe it's dependent on curiosity, but what if it's the case that you talked about positive feedback loops? What if ultra learning is actually a method for generating more curiosity? Do you you buy that? Do you you think? Yeah, I do. I do. Well, I think, again, it kind of goes to this point. Um, so one of the chapters that didn't get into the book, um, cause I was working on these principles and I ended up with nine and it's a total arbitrary collection right. of things that like, okay, it's, it's not like there were actually, these are the nine principles. So there were other principles that I was kind of testing out and, you know, I, I read through the research and I just, I, I didn't know how to work it into the book. And so one of them I was thinking was originally going to be a principle was going to be curiosity. So I did a bunch of research on the research on curiosity and, Um, one of the sort of main kind of ideas is that, uh, when you feel the most curious is when there is an information gap. Um, but the gap is kind of like sensitive to this sort of framing effect, right? Because it's not just about not having knowledge because there's lots of things that you know nothing about that maybe you have no curiosity about, right? Like, uh, oh, well, I don't know anything about that, but I'm not interested in it. Um, whereas what makes someone curious is kind of where there is some, sort of gap of knowledge um, that is there, but that there it's kind of like feels like you could close it, you know, and like it feels like it's within grasp. So right. I think that um, that framing is very sort of dependent on kind of your ability of like, what is a gap you could actually close? And so this sort of goes back to this idea I had that, you know, um, you know, doing the MIT challenge, which admittedly, it was a very intense year. And I don't think most people need to do anything that intense um, if they're just interested in a topic. But I think 
there was something about it where doing it in the year time frame with all the caveats and stuff that I had mentioned uh, changed the kind of internal calculus I had a little bit about doing it. Because if you're contemplating, is this worth four years in my life or is this worth one year? That does actually make a difference about which projects you're willing to approach. Similarly with learning a language, if you've been kind of instructed on this idea, um, either through sort of dismal Spanish classes in high school, <laughs> or just because people you know who do speak a language fluently have, you know, spent, uh, you know, a decade or more learning it. If you have this idea that, well, okay, the only way that this is going to pay off is if I spend 10 years, you know, grinding at it. Uh, then it just doesn't seem that appealing. It's like, ah, well, why bother learning that? You know, I'm only going to Germany for two weeks, so why bother learning any German? Or I'm only, you know, I'm only doing this, ah, whatever. It's it's not worth the hassle. And so that kind of cost-benefit uh, shifts that, like, if you could learn enough, you know, again, for the, like, two-week in Germany stay, like, you could learn enough German to do a lot of good things if after, like, a month of doing some immersion or something like this, you know, it changes sort of like, okay, well, maybe I could do that. You know, maybe that would be worth it just for some fun. And so I think um, the curiosity in my mind is it's often this kind of implicit cost benefit calculation. And I think a lot of people, they just see the world, the the sort of the frontiers that they like to explore the just the, the on ramps to them are just too steep. You know, it's right. just, it's just too much of a hike. It's just too much of a climb. And so they don't see that they want to do it. And so I think, um, you know, there's definitely some strategies that can help you kind of reduce the steepness of it. Um, but I think in a lot of cases it's, yeah, it's just something that you, you get kind of, as you do more of these projects, you get a much better sense of which things are, are really within grasp. Yeah. And that's, that's what was so exciting to me about about this book. And I, you know, I'd, I'd read a lot of your, your stuff before this book, but there was something about like spending a few hours, like reading through the book all at once, like all of your, or a lot of your most important thoughts on this topic in a condensed way. I, I think the most exciting thing for me was this idea that what, what ultra learning can really lead to is this, it, it's, it's a now it's similar to the idea of self-efficacy, which is sort of the belief that you can accomplish something, but, but it's, mm -hmm. it's specific to, it's almost like it's, it's a more specific version of that in that it's, it's the belief in myself that I can learn something. And like, that seems yeah. like that's the thing that unlocks curiosity, right? Like if you don't have that, if you don't have that belief in yourself that you can close the gap, it's not going to happen. And then you're not going to get those positive feedback loops of, that, that come from curiosity and, and then learning and then getting more curious. Right. So it, it, it's, mm -hmm. I, I would, when I read this book, I was sort of thinking it almost in reverse. Like when we first started, we talked about the MIT challenge, then the, the, the year of no English and then the, the portrait drawing challenge. But I think the way most people, um, I don't want to say ought to think about it, but it might be easier to think about it, like flip the triangle on its head, like start with the, the 30 day thing, the little thing and build up this kind of self-efficacy or kind of belief in yourself that you can have a little nugget of curiosity and then pursue it successfully. Um, and I just think that's, I, I don't know of any other system or set of ideas for like an actual concrete method for how do you become more curious and then reap all the benefits that come from being a very curious person. So uh, I can give some thoughts because one thing I would like to just sort of stress, and I, I kind of get in this trap sometimes too, that 
I make kind of a big deal about these sort of public projects that I do. And so it gives this sort of impression that like, oh, those are the things I've learned is those like three projects. And so I, I had this happen when I uh, was doing the MIT challenge. I got a lot of like in the early days, like critiques from people who are like, oh, this is classic planning fallacy. Like you're never going to finish right. this and this kind of thing. But it was just because it seemed like it came from nowhere. It just seemed like I just spontaneously one day got this idea that I was going to do this. <laughs> and it was an enormous amount of planning, but it was also built on, I'd been doing stuff like this for, you know, the the years pr leading up to it. So like I, I'd already, uh, when I was in high school, I'd already taught myself some programming, which maybe seems like, well, I, well what did I need to do the MIT challenge for until you realize that MIT um, their computer science degree is uh, way more math than programming. So knowing how to program is only a very mild help in uh, <laughs> in actually proceeding through that curriculum. But I taught myself programming. I taught myself how to do like 3D graphics. I taught myself all sorts of things, um, you know, in high school and in, in university. I, I've been doing this. Like, I, I, you know, when I went to France to like, I was doing my class in English and I was learning French on the side. And, and so I feel like... Um, the MIT challenge wasn't this sort of like the starting point for me in uh, all sorts of things. It was certainly the starting point of doing a project of that scope and intensity, but it was, it had come from like, I'm ready to take on a really big challenge because I had done other things before that, you know, I, I had had some success with. And so I think it, you definitely have to start at somewhere you feel comfortable with, um, despite the kind of, you know, um, some sometimes kind of crazy results that I, I talk about people getting in the book. I think it's also important to start from a kind of a humble and realistic perspective. So I think one of the misapplications of this idea, and I sometimes I get emails from people who are like, well, they think the big thing is just setting the goal. <laughs> like they think the big thing is just like, I'm going to do this in three weeks. And like just saying that makes it happen. And it's like, no, no, no. Like saying it does nothing, right? You actually have to go out and do it. It's, you, it takes a lot of planning and preparation to be like, mm, maybe I could do it in this amount of time because I have some experience with it. And so my approach is sort of the opposite, is that you have no idea what you can learn. <laughs> you have no idea how quickly you can learn it. You don't have enough experience. But if you go out and you do a lot of these projects, you start to feel around for things. And you start to feel around for things like, oh, well, everyone thinks that this is going to be really, really hard, but they're doing it this way. And I think if you did it this other way, it would be much faster. So that's sort of, that's sort of the gimmick for how I start a lot of these projects is, um, oh, well, everyone who goes to learn another language in another country and they don't speak it already, well, they spend their time speaking in English. They make this big bubble of English speakers around them and then they have very little practice time. Like that's just sort of everyone does that. And so this was sort of like, well, what if you didn't do that? And so I think for me... Um, that those kind of ideas for projects and and these things for doing it they they come from you know you're you're spending a lot of time experimenting you're spending a lot of time learning about yourself about what kind of projects you can execute how much time you can invest all this kind of thing and so the goal is more to just sort of show some of the possibilities but not to sort of claim that you know just just saying you can do it in 6 weeks makes it so but rather you know, how long could it take? You know, maybe, maybe try it a different way. Maybe try doing it this way. And, and, um, I, I think that there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. It's, it's fitting that the, the last sort of principle you talk about in the book is experimentation, right? And so there's a lot, there's experimentation within a project, right? But then there's also this mm -hmm. kind of meta level of experimenting to find your way into the, pro the project that's a good fit for you. Right. Um, now, okay. So we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but 
I have to ask you about the other two books that I just could not get out of my mind as I was reading your book were um, two of Cal Newport's earlier book uh, books, So Good They Can't Ignore You and Deep Work. And I have my own kind of little pet theory for <laughs> for why these two books are so um, seem so tied to this. But how do you think about maybe not the books themselves, but the concepts like ultra the concept of ultra learning? How does it fit in with the ideas that Cal talks about in um, around kind of finding your passion in So Good They Can't Ignore You, and then the concept mm-hmm. of of deep work in in that book? Well. They're, they're definitely like influenced because uh, Cal has been a friend of mine since before he wrote either of those books right. and his writing career and writing is like hugely influenced me. And I would say, uh, well, also when I was writing, uh, so sort of an, a kind of a subtle little inside thing is that the original sort of structure of this book, I copied off of deep work like this was it it didn't end up looking like deep work at the end (laughs) but when i was starting i was thinking okay well how could i write a book about this well it's going to be like deep work in that there's a concept and i'm going to spend half the book explaining why it's important and half the book explaining how to do it and it ended up being that the first half became one chapter because I think people kind of quickly gravitated to why being able to learn more quickly was important. Right. It was the how do you, how on earth do you do that that required most That's of so the book. That's so funny. All but, the notes um, in the margin of my copy of Deep Work are on the structure of the book. Like I, I thought to myself, yeah. if I was going to write a book, like this is so well <laughs> laid out. Well, like, Cal's good at what he does. So yeah. I, I definitely, and there was some other, there were some other books definitely that influenced how I, uh, how I thought about writing this book. But I think um, the... But, but how does ultra learning... Like, how do you see it kind of fitting in with, or if at all, with the the ideas in those two books? Like, do you, I personally, well, I almost see them yeah. as kind of a trilogy in in a weird way. But how do you <laughs> how do you think about them? Well, I don't know how Cal would think about that, but I I feel like um, I think uh, the the sort of overlap there with deep work and so good they can't ignore you is that we can often have more results in our lives, if we're just willing to face the fact that some of the tasks that we have to do are going to be more strenuous, they're going to be more difficult, but that in engaging them, we are going to save ourselves more time, we're going to have less waste, we're going to have less inefficiencies. And so both of these sort of uh, kind of ideas are really present in ultra learning. And I think they're also uh, really clear in Cal's work as well. Yeah. And it, it just feels to me like the two like those two books make such a good argument. Like you, you can't like you're nodding your head at every single sentence he's he's writing because he's like, yes, this is this is right. But what what always stuck with me with those books is, and, and he he goes into more of this in Deep Work, but especially in So Good They Can't Ignore You, it's the how. Well, yeah, okay, you can't just go find your passion, right? You have to build skills, valuable skills, and that will lead to your passion. But it's how. Like how do these people who obsess over their craft for, you know, years and years to get to this level. How do they do it? And that's what to me is so valuable about ultra learning is because it's the, it's the step by step, it's the framework for like how anyone can actually start to think about and then do that, start to build those skills. Cause I think it's a very intimidating process for a lot of people to think like, okay, I just have to get world-class or incredibly good at some sort of skill in order to find like my, my passion and a really satisfying career. So anyway, I, I don't know. I just think it's, it's, if if anyone hasn't read these books, like reading them together would be a really interesting experiment. Cause I think, I think this is a really helpful, you you know, your book is, is so integral, I think to some of those ideas, cause it really gives those, it it answers that how question, I think, which is super important. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so anyway, sorry, that's kind of my, my soapbox <laughs> there. <laughs> um, okay, last, uh, kind of a, a last kind of specific question. So imagine there's someone sure. listening um, to this and they're both incredibly excited, but also incredibly intimidated by the idea mm-hmm. of taking on an ultra learning process um, project. What, what kind of advice would you have about kind of a, a first project for somebody in that kind of state of mind who's tentatively excited, but also really intimidated? So my, my general suggestions is uh, to start smaller and more specific and concrete. Um, the problem that a lot of people get involved in is that they can dream up some, it's, it's really easy to dream, dream up a, an ambitious project that excites you, but it's often harder to find something very, very concrete and small that excites you. But that's going to be the thing that's easiest to make progress on. So the idea of, oh, I'm going to be able to speak 20 languages. Well, that sounds really cool. But it's like such an enormous amount of work and it's such a big project that it's very daunting that like you even just get started with it. And it's like, oh, God, I'm going to give this up. Whereas um, I'm going to France in two weeks and I want to be able to have a conversation with someone. That is a much more concrete kind of project that you can engage in. Similarly, I think that there is some version of the thing that you want to learn that can be broken down and sort of attacked very directly. And that can give you some confidence and some progress. So I think one of the real skills of, um, of this that I've learned that it's, it's kind of hard to teach people, but I think is so important is knowing how to properly scope and design a project because a lot of people, they just pick things that they just don't fit and they're just going to lead to frustration. And I, while frustration is sort of helpful in this kind of momentarily, you need to have frustration to learn, it can be really disastrous if the project just fails because it's poorly designed. Like it just wasn't very well thought out. And so what I usually like to suggest is um, pick something very narrow and concrete that would be satisfying if you could do it, that excites you. And so sometimes that's a small component of the skill you'd like to learn. Sometimes that is... Um, you know, a particularly concrete beginner step. So if you're learning programming, well, you've never done any programming, but you have this idea that you want to become this machine learning researcher or you want to be a video game developer. But like, why don't you like make something like just something small is cool on your own. Like you make the game Hangman or you, you know, make the game Asteroids or something like that. And, you know, that is still a not a trivial amount of work. It would probably, if you had no programming experience, definitely require probably about a month to like figure out enough programming things to, to code Asteroids, depending on, I guess, what kind of language you're using, what tutorials you're using and stuff. But I think that's the right way to think about it. And as you get more confidence with this, you can try to kind of do this N plus one, like you can do a slightly harder project than you've done in the past. So, uh, you know, as I said, even though you're kind of viewing my kind of track record starting from the MIT challenge, it's also from me being like, well, as I said, like I'd already done some of the classes um, from this approach before that kind of convinced me that this kind of thing might be possible. And so I would definitely recommend doing one class and seeing how it goes before committing to the MIT challenge. And if you can't get excited about one thing, it's going to be also really hard to get enough excitement to do the whole thing. So I think that also helps you sort of isolate and zoom in on what it is that would be really kind of cool that you could do that's small. And so I think that's super important is scoping the project properly because a good project, and I often spend a lot of time on scoping the project. So I'll wait until I have a really good project design before I start. Like I don't just, you know, I'll just get started. But I I think that's kind of a mistake because you can very easily um, 
you know, get some big abstract idea and then not do any work and then not make progress. And then you just kind of stall out on it. And I think, um, and then you, you internalize the failure yeah. instead of, yeah, you internalize the failure. You, you treat it as, Oh, well that failed. So that kind of becomes this sort of stain on your resume that you want to avoid in the future. Whereas I think the right way of doing it, uh, you know, and it's fine to dabble. It's fine to just try stuff out and see whether you like it first before you commit. But if you're going to commit to something is to have a really good project design. And so my idea for a project is that the project, the way it should feel when you're approaching it is like, oh yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of the opposite of the way I've described some of the projects before, but these projects that I went into were always because there was something that I thought was like, oh, you know, like kind of like I'm the investor who's investing in a stock that I think is way underpriced. Like it's that kind of thing that I'm thinking, oh, this is something that like, it definitely looks more impressive than I think it would actually be if you you understood it properly. And so there's definitely something about that, I think, with a project that you're taking on is that it shouldn't feel like, oh, well, this would just be impossible for me to do. It should be something like, oh, yeah, I could see myself doing it, you know, and if you're not sure about the outcome, because I think it's always better to focus on process over outcome, you know, like the year without English, I think is a much better design project in that way than the MIT challenge, because the year that English was just a process to just like, well, we'll just see how far we can go uh, right. in three months of doing this. And it turned out that we went um, fairly far by my own reckoning. But uh, if we didn't, it was it wouldn't be like, oh, well, it was a failure. You know, it was much more just like we think this would be an effective method for for learning a language. And so I, I recommend that as well. So if you were, you know, okay, well, I'm going to learn watercolor painting and I'm going to do a, a, you know, a quick painting every single day for one month or something like that's your method, right? And, you know, maybe you go really, really far and you're, you're producing brilliant paintings. Maybe you just learn a little bit. Maybe you find out watercolor is a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. But I think that that scoping gives you something concrete. So if you can say to yourself, yeah, I can do one every single day for a month, it's going to be a little bit of time, but it's going to be exciting. And I can, you know, have this like day one, day two, day three kind of thing. That's great, you know, and so that's sort of the project that I typically recommend that's process oriented, that has a good design, that it's something that when you describe it to yourself, it feels both exciting, and it feels like you could actually do it. And if you don't have all those ingredients, I think it usually makes more sense to sort of play around with it a little bit to get the right scope. Uh, before you commit to something. Super good, specific advice. Love it. All right, Scott. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been awesome. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I've still got about 25 questions I didn't get time to ask you, but um, <laughs> we'll get to them some it's other just time. because I'm so verbose, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just such a rich topic, I think. I, and I feel like, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like we're only kind of scratching the surface of this and what's, what's kind of underneath all this. Um, but anyway, where, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So you can, anyone can go to my website. That's scotthyoung.com, S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And there I have uh, over 1400 articles. I have my own podcasts. I have um, free eBooks and all sorts of things. So you can check that out. You can also check out the book, Ultra Learning, Master Heart Skills, um, Outsmart the Competition and Accelerate Your Career. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Um, also, if you're not sick of listening to my voice, it's also narrated by me on Audible, so you can listen to it there as well. Yeah, and I will I will just add that I've been reading Scott's blog for a long time. And it, it is one of the, your your weekly newsletter is one of the maybe three, four that I religiously read every single week. So you guys, I would really encourage you guys to go check out that stuff. It's, it's awesome. Always thought provoking and, and really interesting. So Scott, once again, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.